refer to A.E. Dick Howard as the father of Virginia's Constitution, and for very good reason. He was executive director of the commission that wrote Virginia's current Constitution, and he directed the successful referendum campaign for ratification of that document. So it's appropriate that he's speaking here today as we celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Virginia Constitution. Dick Howard is the White Burkett Miller Professor of Law and Public Affairs at Mr. Jefferson's University. He's a longtime friend and former trustee of the VHS. As well as being the architect of our state's constitution, he's a well-known raconteur who has brought constitutional history to life for a generation, perhaps more than a generation, of law students at UVA. In today's lecture, he will weave the story of Virginia's constitution with the great issues of our state's history, founding a republic, nurturing religious liberty, grappling with problems of race, facing the challenges of a changing society, and reflecting the hopes and aspirations of the people of Virginia. It is a story that has its great moments, such as Jefferson's Statute for Religious Freedom, and its sobering chapters, such as Massive Resistance. Ultimately, it is the story of how a people, through their constitution, shape their destiny, and it will be a special treat for anyone who's interested in legal history, the story of Virginia's constitution, or anyone who may have gone to law school at UVA in the last several decades. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Dick Howard, who will speak to us on the Constitution of Virginia. Thank you, Paul, for that gracious introduction. I've recorded that, and I propose to use it in the classroom when I go back to Charlottesville. <laughs> <laughs> my students will then know that that's somebody who's teaching them. I do have a long association with the society. When I was a kid growing up in Richmond, I used to come over here when it was simply the Battle Abbey and do research. I later served on the Board of Trustees. I have very fond memories of all those moments and, and in, immense admiration for the work that's being done here by people like Paul, his predecessor Charles Bryan, uh, Nelson Langford, all the other people that I have so much respect for. I want to talk today, as you know, about the Constitution of Virginia. Now, this is a change of pace for most folks that know a lot about the federal Constitution. That's a familiar topic. I mean, we have studied that in school, uh, at the law schools of this country, including mine. You have intense study of the federal Constitution. I'm bound to say, looking back on my own law school days as a student, I can't remember when any of my professors ever even mentioned the Constitution of Virginia. Now, I mean, maybe I cut class that day, or <laughs> maybe I was nodding. There may be a lot of reasons, but I frankly don't remember them talking about it, which made it all the more interesting when I'd begun teaching. I was a newly minted member of the law faculty when, the, uh, when Mills Godwin, governor of Virginia, created the Commission on Constitutional Revision, and the director that the chairman of that commission, Albertus Harrison, former governor, asked me if I would serve as executive director. Well, being a law professor, I said, sure, no problem. Uh, you want to write a constitution? I can do that. Well, <laughs> I didn't tell him I hadn't read Virginia's constitution. <laughs> I, mean, I, th I think that might have shaken his confidence just a little bit. So I, I took the job, and then I went and read the old 1902 Constitution of Virginia. An amazing document, twice the length of the present Constitution. And as I turned the pages, I found such things as a provision that forbade dueling. 
<laughs> dueling. If you fought a duel in Virginia or seconded a duel in Virginia, you lost your right to vote. You were no longer a citizen of Virginia. Well, I have to say we thought maybe dueling wasn't one of the pressing social issues of modern Virginia, so we took that provision out. So if you've seen a resurgence of dueling, I, I guess you have to blame me for that. <laughs> then after reading Virginia's constitution, I said I should read some other state constitutions. So I took a lot, started sampling a few, for example, Louisiana. I don't know if any of you have ever lived in Louisiana, you may know it's a very different place. Very different indeed. Uh, and I'm not just thinking about the French Quarter. Uh, I read their constitution, it was at that time the longest state constitution, and it had provisions such as the one that declared that Huey P. Long's birthday shall forever be a state holiday in Louisiana. <laughs> and it provided that the bridge over the Mississippi at New Orleans shall forever be the Huey P. Long Memorial Bridge. Now, I can't tell you what that was doing in the Louisiana Constitution, but there it was. It was fundamental law in Louisiana. Um, I read Oklahoma's Constitution and paused over the provision that said, that defined the flashpoint of kerosene. <laughs> I mean, did they think the legislature would mess it up if they were allowed to define it and they had to put it in the Constitution? I, in Oklahoma people don't trust their legislators very much, so. So, so that gives you a sampling. I was plunged into a different world when I started thinking about state constitutions. So that's why today I want to talk about the Virginia Constitution, not simply the present document, but take you back to the original 1776 Constitution, try to give you a sense of how the successive Virginia Constitutions have been interwoven with the history of Virginia and, and its people. Now, if you go back to 1776, you have to realize that the the idea of writing a constitution was something new. There were precedents in, I mean, there was, in a sense, a constitutional tradition already emerging in America <clears throat> for a decade between 1765, 1775. Uh, Americans, including Virginians, have been writing tracts and resolutions and complaints against British policy. And in doing that, they were making essentially a constitutional case. They drew on the British Constitution, on the Virginia Charter of 1606. They drew on natural law, such as John Locke's social compact. I mean, they had a, a galaxy of arguments they were making, but they were essentially about constitutional ideas. Well, came the break with England, the independence was declared. Uh, the individual states began the process of writing constitutions. Now, it was, this was until soil in those days, because Britain then, as now, had no and has no uh, written constitution. Uh, national constitutions were yet to be written. The federal convention lay in the future. France had not written its first constitution. So when the delegates down at Williamsburg in May of 1776 began work, um, they were really writing on a blank slate. Nobody quite knew what the enterprise was going to be about. Now the convention that was meeting in Williamsburg was in effect Virginia's governing body. It was the, had been the lower house of the old colonial legislature. The governor dissolved them. They went across the street. Being good Virginians, they went across the street to Raleigh Tavern <laughs> to do their work. I'm sure that sort of got the ideas flowing a little bit better. 
Uh, and that's where the first Constitution was written. On, in May of 1776, uh, two resolutions were adopted on the same day. One was a resolution that directed Virginia's delegates of Philadelphia to uh, introduce the Resolution for Independence. And on the same day, the Virginia Convention set to work on a Virginia Constitution. It's sort of interesting that they understood that if you're going to be independent, the first thing you do is constitute government by way of a constitution. Now that resolution in turn had two parts. First they wrote a Declaration of Rights. Then they wrote what one might call a frame of government or the body of the constitution. I, I think that bifurcation is interesting because the understanding was the first thing you do is declare rights natural, inalienable rights that precede government. Having done that, then you move on to the business of setting up the branches of government, legislature, executive, judicial, and the like. Uh, interesting two-part process. Today's Virginia Constitution has the Bill of Rights as Article One, so it kind of, you, you don't get the full impact of how that was in the beginning, uh, a separate document. Now, the delegates of Philadelphia were pretty remarkable Almost anybody who was anybody in those days was there. Thomas Jefferson was the exception. He was in Philadelphia as a member of the uh, Continental Congress. But James Madison was there at age 25. Uh, Edmund Randolph, later the first U.S. Attorney General, was there at age 22. I don't know what you were doing at age 22 or <laughs> 25, but I know that I wasn't that far. I wasn't helping write constitutions in my early 20s. They had several plans before them. John Adams in Massachusetts had, at the request of George Wythe, had sent down a proposed plan. Uh, Carter Braxton of King, King and Queen County had a plan. But the main document, the final Declaration of Rights and Constitution were largely the work of George Mason, Fairfax County. He wasn't a lawyer, but was well read in the law. Now that Declaration of Rights, George Mason's document, is a powerful document, it's still with a few small changes, still part of Virginia's Constitution. Uh, many of its provisions drew upon the teachings of British constitutionalism, the English Magna Carta, the English Bill of Rights, and the like, but it was prefaced by declarations of natural rights and the social compact, which you would not have found in English, <coughs> excuse me, English documents of that time. Uh, the frame of government part mostly discarded, largely discarded now, actually, um, though it talked about the separation of powers, largely put power in the, uh, in the, in the legislative branch. Uh, suffrage was a very divisive point, but the uh, convention largely left suffrage in the hands of people who voted. Now, one has to understand that in these early American state constitutions, uh, though they might have superficially resembled the kind of constitutions we see today. In fact, they were of a, a different breed, largely now discarded. Uh, they had a weak executive. Uh, governors were typically not elected by the people, they were elected by the legislature, really more like a parliamentary system of government. They had frequent elections, typically annual elections. Every year you'd have a new election for the legislative uh, branch. They had very weak judiciaries. It was not clear that courts would come to exercise the sort of power we now accept that courts have to strike down legislative acts as being 
unconstitutional. So it was really about legislative supremacy. And I think the historical reason for that is that in the colonial period, it was the lower house of the colonial legislature that tended to reflect popular will, whereas the governor and the courts were appointed by the crown, and they were thought to be more remote. So the, the theory and spirit of those early state constitutions was not looking as we tend to look today to internal checks. In other words, not looking to separation of powers and checks and balances, but looking to external checks. Namely, the people themselves would be the check on government. It was a very populist kind of, kind of instinct. Now that soon started to change because it didn't take very long before people began to realize that legislatures could be invasive of one's rights as quickly as uh, governors or other officials could be. So in New York in 1777, that state's constitution provided for a governor to be elected by the people. And the big change, the most important change, came in 1780 in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, they called a convention to write the Massachusetts Constitution, and then that proposed constitution in turn was put out to the people for referendum. So Massachusetts perfected, in effect, the model, the, the modern model of how constitutions really ought to be written. Now, it didn't happen, I mean, I'm very embarrassed to say there's something important that actually happened somewhere else, not in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> I realize with my friends present here from Richmond that maybe you'd rather hear me tell a different story, but uh, we, Paul, we are talking about history, aren't we? We have to tell it like it, like it was. First Thanksgiving for us, but the first convention for uh, Massachusetts. Uh, so, sorry, Tom, it was, that's the way it was. Um, Thomas Jefferson did not like, was a, a severe critic of the first Virginia Constitution. He Maybe because he wasn't there, it's probably he was in Philadelphia, and he probably figured, how could they possibly do it without me? Well, he didn't like what they did without him. He said the suffrage was flawed because it was property holding. If you didn't own property, you couldn't vote. Representation was flawed because it put all the political power in the hands of the older Tidewater counties down in east of here, and the growing Piedmont and Valley and Transmontane regions were severely underrepresented. He didn't, he didn't like the, the malapportionment. He in particular was upset because we had not done what Massachusetts did, namely the body that wrote Virginia's first constitution was simply a legislative body. It mixed the functions of legislation and constitution making. He said you've got to sort them out that constitutions ought to be written by a body commissioned by the people with the warrant to write a constitution, and that had not happened in 1776. And he was upset finally because there was no real separation of powers, because though the Virginia Constitution had the theory of separation of powers, it was not a reality. The legislature was dominant, uh, the other um, branches of government were, were lesser. So he, he tried his hand at writing drafts for Virginia constitutions. Uh, they did not get anywhere. Uh, in the meantime, it's interesting that the courts of Virginia began to uh, treat the first constitution as, in fact, a super statute, fundamental, able to prevail over ordinary law. Uh, uh, George Wythe, 
who had been Thomas Jefferson's law teacher, uh, in dictum in an early case said that if a case came before him where it looked as if the legislature had overstepped the bounds of the Virginia Constitution, he would be obliged to say so and strike it down. So as early as 1793, the Supreme Court of Virginia did in fact five judges writing separate opinions, but they all came to a similar conclusion that they did have the power as the High Court of Virginia to declare a statute unconstitutional. I mention that because when law professors teach constitutional law, they typically start their course with uh, John Marshall's opinion in Marbury versus Madison, 1803. And it's interesting to realize that the Virginia court had laid down the same principle 10 years before that in the case that I've just, just mentioned. One of the chapters of this early history that I think is uh, one of the more not only important for Virginia, but important for the nation, is the working out of religious liberty under the Virginia Constitution. Uh, in 1776 at Williamsburg, uh, George Mason's draft for the Declaration of Rights <clears throat> um, had included the language of toleration, that one should be tolerant in matters of religion. Well, that was very progressive by European standards at that time, but in, in fact, it didn't go far enough for people like James Madison. Madison, I mentioned, was 25 years old at the time. He was a graduate of what we now call Princeton, then the College of New Jersey. And at Princeton, he'd studied under the great Scottish cleric, uh, John Witherspoon. So Madison had imbibed the teachings of the so-called Scottish Enlightenment. Madison had also taken part in Orange County, had taken up the cause of Baptist ministers who were in prison there for their, for their preaching. And Madison understood that though Mason was well-intentioned, the language of toleration wasn't enough. So he moved an amendment to the proposed Constitution that would, in place of toleration, put free exercise of religion, which meant toleration suggests permission or license. You're, it's okay if you practice your religion. We will let you do it. Madison said, no, no, it's an absolute natural right to practice what one believes. So the convention adopted Madison's language in place of the toleration of language. Now, Madison's original proposal would have also disestablished what had been the Anglican, by then was becoming the Episcopal Church in Virginia, and that went too far for the 1776 convention. They weren't willing to do that, so that matter was left to be resolved later. And as you probably know, in the 1780s, uh, Patrick Henry, as governor of Virginia, introduced in the Virginia legislature a bill for assessing the citizens of Virginia to support ministers of religion. Now, it was kind of a, like a checkoff system. You, you could designate the particular minister that you would like the money to go to, but you couldn't opt out and say a pox in all their houses. I'm not <laughs> giving my money to any minister. You had to give it to somebody. Well, that created quite a stir. Petitions poured in, especially from Presbyterians and Baptists. It also provoked James Madison to write one of the great tracts of religious liberty in American history, and that was his famous memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments. Powerful tract. If you've never had a chance to look at it, you ought to dig it out sometime and, and, and read it. 
So that helped uh, carry the day in the Virginia legislature, which then in January of 1786 adopted Thomas Jefferson's Bill for Religious Liberty. That bill had been drafted, I think, in 1777, had not been adopted at the time, so about a decade later, it finally became law in Virginia. Now, what the importance of that, not only for Virginia, but for the nation, is that when that statute was adopted in Virginia, this was just a year before the uh, Federal Convention at Philadelphia, 1787 succeeded soon thereafter by the drafting and passage adoption of the Bill of Rights to the Federal Constitution. And as you may know, in the First Amendment to the Federal Constitution, where you have one speech clause, one petition clause, and so forth, you have two religion clauses. One is about free exercise, and the other is about establishment. Now that's not redundancy, it's not that the framers didn't know how to use language precisely, they understood that free exercise and disestablishment are complementary pillars that they taken together make American free uh, freedom of religion all the more capacious, larger in fact than almost any country in the world that I can think of. And it seems to me Virginians can take some pride in the fact that what our legislature did in 1786 taking that second step from free exercise to disestablishment, laid the groundwork for, was clearly the precedent for what was done when the federal, um, when the First Amendment was added to the federal constitution. So back to the main story, and that is 1776 and thereafter, we know about Jefferson's complaints. Um, early 19th century Virginia was a time in which Virginia was changing profoundly. Virginia had been the wealthiest, most populous, politically most influential state up to that point. It was beginning to lose that hole, partly for economic reasons. Land was being worn out. They weren't rotating crops. People were migrating west in hopes of a better fortune. Uh, there was a reform movement underway in Virginia, but it wasn't yet really taking hold. Um, Jefferson, again, was part of, among those who uh, complained about it. In 1816, he wrote a famous letter to a friend, Samuel Kirchival, in which he once again stated his objections to his proposals for reform of the Virginia Constitution. And there's a passage in that letter where Jefferson says essentially that he doesn't want to jump quickly to change, but you have to recognize with succeeding generations that the needs of the time call for change that you don't wear as a man the suit of clothes you wore when you were a boy. And he, he proposed in the letter, he, he took into account actuarial tables of that day in time, 1816. And at that point in time, he reckoned that of all the people then uh, 21 years of age or older, in 19 years, half would be dead. So he, he reckoned 19 years to be a generation. Well. Today, we'd probably say 30 years or something like that with modern uh, longevity. But at any rate, he said, roughly every generation, you ought to take a close look at the Constitution, see if it's serving the purpose of that day and time, and if it's not, fix it, bring, bring it up to date. It's intriguing that there are a few American state constitutions uh, that actually provide for a popular vote every 20 years, 
on whether the people of that state would like to actually revise their constitution. Well, other states were going through constitutional revision, Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts, and a number of others rewrote their constitutions in the 1820s in the age of Jacksonian democracy. And finally, in 1829, this is a half a century after the original Virginia Constitution was written, Virginia did call a constitutional convention to look at the Virginia Constitution. Uh, amazing collection of people, uh, former presidents like James Madison and James Monroe, a future president, John Tyler, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall was there. He was sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court, but he was in the Virginia Convention. Governors, congressmen, you name it, they were all here in Richmond at this, uh, at this convention to see whether the reformers might finally do some of the things that Jefferson had been, had been calling for. One of the opponents of reform was John Randolph of Roanoke, who had to be the most eloquent and notable uh, speaker of his time. People would come to the convention hours before the debates were to begin just to sit in the galleries and wait for John Randolph of Roanoke to speak. And he said he would not live under king numbers, as he called him, which to say he just rejected the idea of popular democracy. He said he would not be his steward, would not make him his taskmaster. Well, the reformers started, they got a brisk start. It looked like they might carry the day, but the momentum slackened. And for whatever reason, inertia began to set in. So by the time the Constitution of 1830 was uh, proposed by this convention, not very much reform had been achieved. They tinkered a little bit with the representation. They moved a few seats further west. They tinkered with uh, uh, the suffrage. They didn't go for, for universal suffrage, but they did allow uh, city uh, leasers as well as, as, well as uh, freeholders to uh, have the suffrage. They did not make the governor of Virginia elective he still remained elected by the legislature, not by the people. So, so by and large, the power, and constitutions are in good part about power, power remained in the older Tidewater part of Virginia at the expense of the prospering, growing, developing western counties. If you look at the results in the referendum on that constitution, they're quite striking. Um, Sussex County in eastern Virginia approved the Constitution by a vote of 259 to two. Those two people probably just made a mistake, cast the wrong ballot, <laughs> you know, like, it's like uh, the election of 2000 in Florida. Uh, <laughs> we leapt forward a little bit there. Uh, Harrison County, which is in, now in West Virginia, uh, voted no by a vote of 1,112 to eight. Wow, again, eight people just marked the ballot wrong. But look at that sectional split. Practically every living soul in Sussex County liked that constitution because it preserved the old order, and hardly anybody in the western part of the state was willing to support it because they couldn't see reform. If you color in a map of what was then Virginia with the yes and the no results, you get a perfect picture of Virginia and West Virginia. So you, you're just perfect. I mean, you can see as of 1830 that the sectional split that finally became apparent in 1863 was already apparent.
Well, they had another convention in 1850-51, and finally at that point the reformers got a great deal of what they wanted. At last, 75 years after the revolution, the people of Virginia were allowed to vote for their governor. I mean, I know in Virginians we hold on to the old way for a while, but <laughs> 75 years seems like a long time. So we decided we would trust the people with electing their, uh, their governor. And it's interesting that as of 1850, the drafters began to impose limits on the legislative branch because we were moving into an era of railways and turnpikes and canal companies and the like. Legislatures were giving away the ranch. They were basically giving the states money to a lot of doubtful enterprises, so the Constitution began to crack down on that. The next chapter is Civil War and Reconstruction. And <laughs> in Richmond, of all places, I don't have to tell the story of Civil War and Reconstruction. But have that in the back of your mind and imagine Virginia now being military district number one. War is over, South has been defeated, federal troops are occupying the South. And one of the conditions of readmission to the Union was, well, the two conditions. One, ratify the 14th Amendment, and the other condition was to write a new uh, progressive state constitution. Convention met in Richmond in 1867-68. Uh, presided, you will love the delicious irony of this, the presiding officer at that convention was a federal judge named Underwood the same federal judge who presided over the treason trial of Jefferson Davis. Now, can you imagine conservative Richmonders of that time, how they felt about that judge presiding at that particular convention? It was a fairly radical convention. Uh, about one quarter of the members were black, who were new, mostly new, former slaves, a few, a few free blacks. Um, a number of the delegates were people who were carpetbaggers, people who'd come down from the north, or people who had supported the Union all the way through the war. Because most people who had been active in the support of the Confederacy, you know, in the Confederate ranks or whatever, uh, were not eligible to be elected to that convention. So it's a, it was a fairly raucous kind of a convention by all accounts. Uh, you can't anywhere find the printed debates of that convention. 1829 and 30, yes, as a printed volume, but 1867, 68, as they got close to the closing days of the convention, the fu their funds were running out, and they had a choice. They could spend the money that was left on A, publishing the debates of the convention, or B, paying the delegates per diem. <laughs> well, <laughs> what do you think? They, that's why you do not find any published debates of that particular convention. Well, the result was a pretty good constitution. And one thing it did, for the first time, it established a public education system in, for statewide in Virginia. Now, given Virginia was pretty much bankrupt at that point, there weren't many state funds. So therefore, I'm bound to say I doubt schools were very good. But at least the constitution, for the first time, recognized that there ought to be a statewide public education system. Well, that was, the re that was the Reconstruction period. I suspect you're familiar with how things then played out in the latter part of the 19th century, that in the post-Reconstruction era, with the last federal troops left the South in 1876, uh, there was then a powerful movement throughout the Southern states, the former Confederate states, to rewrite the state constitutions with two purposes in mind. 
One was a populist surge of resentment against powerful corporations and railroads who basically had legislators in their pockets. And the other was race. Uh, in Virginia, as in other states, there was a deep unease among white citizens about black influence on state politics. So there was an urge to disenfranch disenfranchise uh, black voters. A convention in Virginia was held in 1901-1902 here in Richmond, and I think uppermost in the minds of the delegates at that convention was to uh, was black voters. Uh, Carter Glass, better known as the father of the Federal Reserve System, was one of the floor leaders at the convention. And uh, when one of the delegates asked Mr. Glass about the franchise provisions of the proposed Constitution, this delegate said, but Mr. Glass, won't these provisions discriminate? And, and Glass was nothing if not direct. He said, discriminate? That's what we're here for. <laughs> we're here, we're, we're gonna discriminate just as far as the federal Constitution will allow us. And you have to think about that day and time. The Civil War and Reconstruction were over. Uh, most people in the North were busy making money. There were transcontinental railway and corporations and the Gilded Age. And the Republican Party in the North had largely lost interest in black voters in the South. So Cardi Glass knew they were being given a lot of license. They meant to take it. So what they did was put into place at least two important provisions. One was a registration provision that said uh, if you wanted to register to vote, the uh, registrar could produce the state constitution and ask you to interpret, just open it up, ask you to interpret a provision of it. <laughs> well, I have to tell you the provisions of our state constitution I couldn't interpret to you. <laughs> so you just average working person, farm person, whatever, you go in to vote, I'm going to register, how are you going to interpret the state constitution and if your face is the wrong color, if you're the wrong hue, the chances are that register, registrar is not going to be satisfied with your answer. So you don't, you don't bother. You just don't go to register because you know you're not going to be registered. In addition to that, the 1902 Constitution provided for the poll tax. That was a dollar and a half and doesn't sound like much money, but in 1902 that was a lot of money to uh, fairly poor people. And it was cumulative. If you didn't pay last year, you had to pay two years in a row. So between the poll tax and the registration provisions, the result was to disenfranchise not only most black people in Virginia, but most poor white people too. And if you've ever thought about, many of you will remember the bird machine. Uh, if you ever wonder what was the basis for the bird machine's grip on power in Virginia, it starts, it doesn't start, but it's uh, solidified by those actions in, in 1902. The changes were so effective that it was 1928 before as many people voted in a general election in Virginia as had voted in 1898. That's 30 years time, during which period women got the vote, which would double the number of potential voters, and Virginia doubled in population. So you had four times the number of potential voters, but the absolute number of voters only reached in 28 what it had been back in 1898. So couple that with, footnote on Virginia history, the courthouse rings, the state compensation commission, other organs of government, and coupled with 
when Harry Byrd was governor, the amendment of the state constitution to create what we call the short ballot, that we only vote for the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, all those things put together created a very comfortable uh, political scene for those who were in power during that time. Well, that's the way it was in the first half of the, when I was growing up in Richmond, that's what I remember things to be like. Uh, that changed in the 1960s. 1960s, Supreme Court decided the one person, one vote decisions. And so Virginia, like all the other states, had to redraw its legislative districts. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed and Virginia was then and still is under the federal statute. Um, the Supreme Court struck down the poll tax in a 1966 decision and Virginia finally became a two-party state. <laughs> Some of you may remember when uh, the only election that mattered was the Democratic primary and has that, that changed and by the end of the 60s we had the first post-Reconstruction Republican governor in Virginia's history in the person of Linwood Holton. That brings us to the present Constitution. I mentioned that I was a law professor and just started teaching when Mills Godwin appointed the Commission on Constitutional Revision. Uh, it was an amazing commission. It earned the name Blue Ribbon. Lewis Powell of Richmond, who later, later sat on the U.S. Supreme Court, Colgate Darden, a former governor, a former UVA president, Albertus Harrison, another former governor, um, Oliver Hill, who was the leading civil rights attorney in Virginia at that time. Um, people of that, I mean, these, this was a remarkable group of people. Of course, I was the kid on the block. I was the draftsman doing their, uh, doing their work. The um, commission went to work over several months, produced a draft constitution and a report to the governor and general assembly. They then acted on the, adopted with some changes, the commission's proposals. Now in Virginia, you have to act, the legislature has to act twice to put something by way of constitutional revision on the ballot. So the legislature did that, and we went to referendum in the fall of 1970. Uh, by then, Linwood Holton was governor, and he asked me if I would take leave from the law faculty and organize the referendum campaign. Well, I was a professor. I didn't know anything about politics, you know, but I said, yes, sir, I'll be happy to do that. So. Uh, we went to work, uh, Hully Moore, who is back here, was my right-hand man in, in that, in that uh, referendum campaign. We set out to do everything you would do if you were organizing a campaign for governor or, or U.S. senator. We had a speaker's bureau, bumper stickers, uh, TV advertising, everything you can, you can imagine. And I went around the state making speeches. I was able to speak at least once in uh, every city and county in Virginia, places I'd never been or would never have gone otherwise. And I mean, I, <laughs> I had to be all things to all people. It's one thing to speak to a, uh, a women's club in suburban uh, Henrico County and quite something else to speak to a black church in Southside Virginia or a Ruritan club out in the Southwest. Uh, it was for me, a, I have to say, a rich education in Virginia. It also had its chancy moments, we had a campaign office downtown in Richmond, uh, down on 9th Street, and my secretary was a lovely young woman from Charlotte County, 19 years old, her first job in, uh, out of high school. She was, came to Richmond. And so we all had lapel buttons. Our, our campaign logo was simply yes. 
Yes. <laughs> Billboards, bumper stickers, buttons, all the rest. And of course, we all wear a button. So one day she came back from lunch without the lapel button. And I said, Mary, you know, you're part of a team. We're all wearing these buttons. Why, why aren't you wearing yours? And she said, Mr. Howard, you fire me if you like, but I wore my button. I went out for lunch down Main Street and was propositioned twice. <laughs> and so I said, I said, I think I get the point. <laughs> I think you don't have to wear you. You don't have to wear the uh, the the. I never. I mean, I was naive enough not to see, but boy, I thought about it thereafter. Um, I remember in my speaking around the state going down to Colonial Heights, which is really Southside Virginia in a lot of ways, uh, spoke to the Rotary Club in Colonial Heights. And sitting right down here in the front row was a gentleman with a very dour expression on his face. I could tell that he was not liking what I had to say. Uh, he was re tape recording my remarks, which I never take as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> This may not have been the internet age, but I knew he'd use it in some fashion, not to my liking. And he had with him, during the Q&A session, he had brought with him something that looked like the logo of the United Nations, you know what that looks like. And this logo had movable parts, so that you could take the UN logo and move a couple of pieces of it, and it became the hammer and sickle of the Soviet Union. <laughs> Well, now, you know, you may wonder, what does that have to do with the Virginia Constitution? But he was wedded to what I would call a conspiracy theory. And the, the opponents of the Constitution said, good, thoughtful Virginians could not have written this Constitution. Of course, this was Lewis Powell and Colgate Darn and all that crowd, but it couldn't have been Virginians. It had to have been written out of state, right? Maybe New York or Chicago or, or maybe Moscow or Beijing or some place alien, the more alien the better. So that was the, the connection. And actually the, the, the sort of paranoid friends who attacked us made us look good. We were able to sign up the whole spectrum of politicians from liberal Democrats to conservative Republicans and independents in between to help us in the different counties and cities. So we went to referendum. We got 72% of the vote. Uh, most politicians would be thrilled to get that kind of, that was a real mandate. We carried every congressional district. We carried nearly all of the cities and counties. We got runaway percentages in Lexington, for example, or Fairfax voted 85%. Begins to look like a Bulgarian plebiscite, doesn't it? <laughs> You're bound to wonder, but, but we, won, we won big time. I think um, we accomplished, I think, it was not, it was not a overthrow of the old system. I mean, it was, as Virginians tend to do things, it was incremental improvement. We uh, rearranged the Constitution, made it about half as long as it used to be. That was something. Took out a lot of stuff that didn't need to be in there. We put uh, education in the Bill of Rights for the first time, drawing on Jefferson's bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge. We uh, put stronger education provisions in so that we could never again have the closing of schools as happened in Prince Edward County, Virginia. Uh, we put in a conservation article so environmental quality became part of the Constitution. We strengthened the court system. <clears throat> I think a number of reforms were accomplished. There were some things I would like to or wish had been done, but uh, politically you can't do everything, but I think we, we did a lot.
Uh, it has been a durable constitution. I have to be candid and say I'm glad we did it when we did because the era of the late 60s and early 70s, we were able to pull together the state's leadership across the aisles in a way that I think would be more difficult to do today. I mean, we, we know about the partisanship of the moment, how people just shriek past each other and don't really seem to come to common ground. I think we did have common ground in writing the present Constitution. So it is a document which, uh, though it is by no means perfect, I think it's pretty good. It stood these 40 years pretty well. Um, I think the bottom line to this story of Virginia's Constitution is it's, I commend it to your study, not simply the present document, but how it unfolded. Uh, the U.S. Constitution is notoriously difficult to amend and therefore seldom amended, whereas state constitutions are rewritten periodically along a Jeffersonian principle. And therefore, if you look at the successive Virginia constitutions, you see how they tend to more nearly reflect the hopes, the fears, the aspirations of each generation more nearly than I think the text of the U.S. Constitution does. The part that's most enduring, I mentioned George Mason's Declaration of Rights. Uh, there's some wonderful language in there because it speaks not only to rights and limits on government, it speaks to citizenship. It really speaks to what Republican government is all about, what the virtues of citizenship are. And Mason's language, still in Article I, Section 15, says that no free government nor the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. I love that line, a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. Uh, if this were a classroom, it's not. If there were a pop quiz and there's not, you'd be happy to know. But if there were a carryaway line, that would be the one. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Paul, I understand we have a few minutes for questions, and I. The microphone's here, and I'd be delighted to respond to that questions. Was, yes, was, sir. That off. was a great lecture. Thank uh, you very much. Uh, are you responsible for the fact that Virginia is the only state uh, that allows uh, or prohibits a two-term governor? I am not responsible for that. <laughs> hey, remember I said I was the higher, I was just the draftsman, right? I can always say, oh, the higher-ups have decided that. That's a wonderful question to start with. It's the question is, uh, about the one-term governorship in Virginia. We are now the only state in the country. It used to be Mississippi had the same uh, provision, but they dropped there, so we're, we're by ourselves. Uh, I will say for the record that I tried at the time, in my subsidiary role, I was not the policymaker, I laid that question before the commission. I hoped that they would loosen it up and allow a governor at least one so one term, one extra term. Two-term rule might be all right, but as you know, in Virginia with the one-term rule, a governor is elected, he or she inherits uh, the predecessor's budget. Halfway through that gov new ter governor's term, then that governor gets to, to present his or her own budget to the legislature, and by then, the governor's a lame duck. So it really does interrupt, I think, long-term policy making. I would think, I mean, my feeling is I would trust the people 
to look at the incumbent. If they like the incumbent's job, vote him into office or out, as the case may be. Now, we have had a couple of examples of governors who served twice, but not successive terms. Mills Godwin was one that was one in the 19th century. But uh, that question was raised. Interesting. It's interesting that the commission polled all the living former governors at that time. And all of them liked the one-term rule. <laughs> well, why not? They've already served. They don't benefit from changing the rule. They like it the way it was. So, of course, I leave you to judge as a matter of your own conscience how many of Virginia's governors you would like to have kept for a second <laughs> term. But I'm not, I'm not going there. That's, that's a, that's a non-constitutional, wonderful question. Thank you. Yes. And my question is about the power of local government yes. and the Constitution. Of course, we are a Dillon Rule state per right. the Virginia exactly. Supreme Court. When, uh, was it true that there was a home rule provision uh, talked about in forming the 71 Constitution? The question is about, uh, in effect, home rules for counties and cities. We have, you mentioned Dillon's Rule. This is a 19th century judge in Iowa named Judge Dillon who laid down as a principle that local governments would only have those powers explicitly delegated to them by the legislature to rule of strict construction. And once again, I, these questions are taking me down memory lane because that's another area where my personal preferences were not what finally turned out. But if I could write the Constitution single-handedly, we'd have gubernatorial succession. I would personally reverse Dillon's rule. I think that's more controversial. And I, what I would do, I mean, I, I'm very, uh, hey, I teach at Mr. Jefferson's University. What, I mean, I trust the people. <laughs> and I would trust the people of a county or city to get it right. And then the legislature can always step in, right, with a general law telling local governments what they can't do. I just think that's a more, a healthier democratic approach. Now, I say it's controversial because it's interesting. I was, I was fascinated that when the proposal came up, to reverse Dillon's rule back when we wrote the present Constitution, the Virginia Association for Counties and the Virginia Municipal League both came out against the change. They liked Dillon's rule. And I was thinking, now that doesn't make sense. Surely these people would like to trust local governments. I think what they were afraid of, you reverse Dillon's rule and then the legislature really gets going, passing lots of general laws and make matters worse for the counties and cities. And I, they know more about local government uh, th than I do. I also discovered that the legislature likes Dillon's rule. And I think the reason may be if you're a legislator, it gives you a sense of place to have local officials come to you with a, and you're nodding your head in agreement. I, I've never been a legislator, but I can just imagine that, that state of mind. So at any rate, that was another change that did not happen in the present Constitution. Would you comment perhaps on uh, your view of the Constitution, any Constitution, as a living document? As a living document? Uh, this, <laughs> do we have another hour? <laughs> this is, you know, it's a really, I think it's a wonderful debate that goes on because it makes people think about what they think a Constitution ought to do. As you, I'm sure you know there's a debate between those on the one hand who believe that one should hew to what is called the original understanding, that we get as close as we can to what the original framers of the federal constitution or any other constitution intended and stick to that. And another view is the so-called living constitution, 
argument, which is basically that inevitably you have to pour each generation's understanding when you're reading the Constitution. Uh, mine is a somewhat intermediate position. Kind of, that's, that's really a kind of, I don't know, middle ground is always not a very safe place to be, perhaps. But at any rate, my position is somewhat like this. I think that the clearer the original understanding was, the stronger the presumption that you ought to stick with it. I mean, if the language is clear, that's the end of it. If a constitution says there have to be 12 people on a jury, there's no fooling around. You know, the, the number's perfectly clear. But the tough questions, the ones that get to the U.S. Supreme Court or the Supreme Court of Virginia, are typically questions that revolve around language where, where the language is not clear, nor is the original understanding clear. Due process of law, equal protection of the laws, cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, take language, what some call the majestic generalities of the Constitution. This is not self-revealing language. And it's, you go back and read the debates all you like, and you're going to find there was speculation and ambiguity as to what the framers understood that language to mean. And that means that the toughest cases will typically be ones where you have to start with the language, pour into it the original understanding, but then do your best to say what works today. So I guess finally on many of the cases, I, th I think the notion of a living constitution is perhaps inevitable. Also, I think it's Jeffersonian. That's the notion that each generation matters. Uh, the uh, Jefferson and Madison were very fond in their correspondence of saying the phrase was, the earth belongs always to the living generation. And by that, I understand Jefferson and Madison to have meant we respect our ancestors, we respect their judgments and their insights, but ultimately we have to live with the Constitution ourselves. Um, one more question? Uh, so, wherever you... Yes. Uh, thank you very much. This was a wonderful talk, and I can't believe uh, how articulate you were with no notes most of this lecture. <laughs> very impressive. Um, I taught at William & Mary for 30 years, and I'm in touch still with a large number of my students. And I guess what my question is related to, uh, I have a small number of students and some friends of mine who are gay and lesbian. And they are wonderful people, their jobs, their volunteer work. Um, many of them have been in very long-term relationships. Uh, some of them have children. Um, and some of them have gone to Canada, to Massachusetts, and other states where they can be legally married. And so my question is about the amendment to the Virginia Constitution, which not only outlaws marriages, but also civil unions for same-sex people. And I just wondered, this is, we're rather different in our state constitutions. And uh, so I just wondered if you have any thoughts about this, because I have uh, some very good friends in Richmond uh, who are in these same situations, and I respect them a lot. Thank you. Thank you. The question is about the so-called marriage amendment to the Virginia Constitution, which I think was voted on in 2006 and uh, became effective in 2007. And that question is very interesting because it really, I, I didn't plant these questions, by the way. <laughs> we have, you know, I kept saying there's going to be one question that's so off the wall I won't understand it or I'll be embarrassed by it. 
or I just won't be able, I'll just be tongue-tied. But these have been such good questions. I appreciate that. But at any rate, this last question brings us right back to a fu foundational question. What do you expect a Constitution to do? What do you look for in a Constitution? And here's my answer to that question because it also responds to your question. And that is, I think Constitutions really ought to be about fundamentals in the sense of structure of government, process, you know, how laws become, bills become laws and the like, the judiciary and the like. It should certainly be about limitations on government power, free speech, free exercise of religion, due process and the like. What in my personal view constitutions ought to stay away from is making judgments about social issues. The one time we ever amended the federal constitution to deal with this, uh, a social issue all of you will be familiar with, well not personally you weren't there at the time, prohibition. And then of course that was a failed experiment. We finally had to amend the constitution again to repeal prohibition. Should have been left to the legislative process. That is how I personally feel about issues like gay marriage or the like. That how you define marriage, what the rights of partners are, whether in conventional marriages or otherwise, really is a judgment for the people and their representatives. And I think to take that issue and put it into the Constitution of Virginia was a mistake. However, and, and I say that without regard to how one feels about the specific issue you raised, I think that should be left because I think uh, there are practices that evolve. My younger, my students, a younger generation will probably take a fairly different view of questions like gay marriage from what their parents take. And however that evolves, I would like a healthy democracy to debate that question. Think about it, think about the impact on people's lives and then make an appropriate legislative or policy judgment. I would not put it in the Constitution. So anyway, thank you very much. I do want to say again, just, just to repeat, uh, how gratifying it is. First place, the number of people who come. I mean, I thought I might have a handful of eccentric students of the Constitution. <laughs> so Constitution junkies who turn out for anything, you know. So, so I mean, and you've been a warm and welcoming audience. Uh, it's, you're not like my students, they take me for granted, you know, but <laughs> y'all are terrific. But the questions were so good. I just wished, Paul, I wish we had a two-hour session because I would, I would enjoy it. Yeah, but, but, we, but we have to quit. Thank you so much. Thank you.